this is a special episode of the Stem Cell Podcast, ISSCR Day 5, with Dr. Nicolas Rivron. Hey, everybody. We are Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Today, we're back with our final episode from the 2021 ISSCR Annual Meeting. We'll be discussing highlights from the past 24 hours of the meeting and chatting with Dr. Nicolas Rivron about his thoughts on how things went. If you're tuning in for the first time, be sure to head over to the Stem Cell Podcast website or Stem Cell Technologies YouTube channel, where you can find the video of today's episode as well as videos for the episodes covering all the previous days of the meeting. We're going to kick things off in just a minute, but before we get there, in case you miss it on the opening day, check out the coordinates focus session on demand for information on best practices and new tools from stem cell technologies for gene editing PSCs, pluripotent stem cells. And you can view the full program on the ICCR website. So we'll jump right into the recap from yesterday, uh, where we left off right after we we, we left off, we had the ICCR Momentum Award that was given to none other than Dr. Valentina Greco, who is not only an incredible stem cell biologist, but really a champion for everything related to diversity, equality, inclusion in this particular field. And um, I, I think she was also one of the members on the, uh, the Women in Science panel. And, uh, you know, when it comes to her science, I'll, I'll let you listen to our old episode that we released a few months ago, but she's just one of our favorite people on this show. We just love talking to her just because she's such a, just a good person who's willing to, to lift the voices of the people in the field who aren't often heard from, you know, that's trainees and underrepresented minorities and that sort of thing. So she's made, really made that a mission of hers. So after that, we had multiple concurrent sessions, I decided to go to a, a theme session on modeling development, uh, starting off with Grayson Camp, who is charting human development using a multi-organ endodermal atlas and different organoid models. I think we've actually covered some, some of the work previously. Uh, the other talk that was very relevant given the overall, our overarching theme of this particular ICCR and the focus on these early embryo models um, was from Alejandra Aguilera Catalon. Apologies for the mispronunciation there. But he is the first author on that nature paper coming out of Jacob Hanna's group, you know, that took the stem cell field by storm, those roller cultures, those ex vivo, ex utero cultures for growing uh, mouse embryos from pre-gastrulation to, um, you know, later on during development. So a question actually came up in the Q&A about something that we were talking about when this Jacob Hanna paper was actually published. Can you go from zygote, zygote? to full embryo using this roller culture. And he was ambiguous about the answer, but he said they're working on it. So, hey, I mean, that's that's interesting to say the least. Um, moving on from that to Galina Popova, neuroimmune organoids for modeling early brain development and disease. Sasha, Sasha Menjin, who actually we covered the, his paper as well. This is that cardioid. You remember that self-organizing cardioid that could model the early principles of cardiogenesis that kind of like a ventricular organoid that just looks really cool. You know, it's like a ventricle in a dish. You can just see it visually contract. So he was expanding on that work a little bit. Hiroko Sujimoto, kidney organoids, and Holly Vogues, 
vascularization of cardiac organoids. This is actually work that was coming out of James Hudson's lab, um, and in particular, the impact of extracellular matrix um, on the organization of these vascularized cardiac organoids. So, um, so a fun set of talks, and again, really highlighted by the work coming out of Jacob Hanna's group and very relevant to the topics and the themes, the overarching themes of this year's ISCR. Yeah, I was uh, surprised there. I mean, not surprising because you got you to you be careful with the way you answer those questions. But I was only surprised because Jacob Hanna, I remember when we covered the story that he, I read in the New York Times article that he had, had uh, hinted at the fact that they'd already done it and they had uh, oh, uh, zygotes from the oviduct that they had then carried through their roller culture. So I guess um, maybe his, his PR team there told him he needed to chill and uh, <laughs> relayed that to his trainee so that he would pull back on the claims there. But I mean, I'm sure it's just a matter of time, so we'll see how that goes. And, you know, that brings us to the, the, the concurrence for this morning, um, which I was excited to, to, to get into this first concurrent that was um, the complex 3D systems for therapy and drug discovery. The other one was engineering tissues and organs. They were kind of a, a, along the same lines, but the that first one I mentioned, because it was led by uh, Misao Fujita, who, who took kind of the, the social perspective, who was looking at the, the um, how people feel essentially about these experiments, brain organoids, chimeras, um, and really addressing kind of the, the consciousness and moral status questions with the, the lay public, as well as among scientists, and had some interesting findings, I thought that illustrated both uh, cultural differences. You know, in Japan, they are apparently much more conservative relative to uh, in the United States. But I mean, my real takeaway there was a little bit of uh, questions regarding the design. Fundamentally, when we ask questions of the lay public, I think, and we've talked about this, it, 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 we have to be more careful with, with, the, with the terminology. I mean, on her slides, she was talking about how imposing the question of the lay public, asking questions like, or the, the response to the lay public at least saying like, uh, I wouldn't feel so bad about breeding livers, but <laughs> I would feel bad about breeding brains in a dish. And I think, I mean, the fact that anyone's talking about breeding right away is like yeah. a big red flag in terms of the communicating the science. Also, just the, the term brain organoids, we talked about this, we gotta stop with the brain yeah. organoids. Even cerebral organoids, I think, Need to, we need to be careful, you know. When I think of when a lay person thinks of the cerebrum, they're thinking of the brain, you know. They're not thinking of like the cerebral cortex or some cell type, right? So we have to be careful. And the idea of like humanization of animals, when we ask that to the lay public, they're not thinking what we know humanization is. They're thinking we're going to make this animal human. So I have a fundamental issue with the way we're conducting these surveys. I, it's, I, I liken it to the, in the eighties, everyone was calling, you know, anyone who was undergoing artificial, artificial reproductive technology to call them test tube babies. I mean, this is, this is yeah. irresponsible. I think we need to step back as we already have many groups, but we really need to apply our, our revisionist thinking on the terminology here uh, and find some consensus. So that was my one takeaway from there. I was a little bit uh, I don't know, neither here nor there, but it was interesting in terms of the findings and receptivity. Uh, that's definitely worth checking out. Also, some of the trainees, uh, Rowan Carvas, who, who had some really exciting unpublished data looking at stem cell-derived trophoblast organoids and what was really 
amazing about this, I thought, is that there was a lot of characterization of, of these cells and they were both primary as well as stem cell derived, which I thought was a, a big deal. None of it published. Um, but also at the end, in terms of function, she showed that these organoids were not susceptible to SARS-CoV-2, hmm. which is kind of like good news. Um, but in order to validate the platform showed that Zika, by contrast, really went nuts in these uh, um, the kind of placental organoids that you got from the trophoblast stem cells. So I thought that was a really cool uh, demonstration of the technology and then also the clinical relevance of it. Then there was a Toshia uh, Nishimura who showed this was the intrarodent chimeras, you know, where they do IGF-1 receptor knockout and show that these mice are more receptive to uh, transplant and chimerism from the Nakauchi lab. Not worth talking about it here because it's all published. There was no new data. Then there was a uh, Catherine Lee from the Brigham, another trainee, probably travel award, merit award. I'm not sure about that. It wasn't mentioned, but uh, she had this great story about um, limbal stem cells, which are the ones between the sclera and the iris um, that reconstitute the eye. She called it a nice way of thinking it, I thought was the skin of the eye. Mm. Um, and showed that you could buy a bioprint these ABCB5 positive cells. And going back to the skin of the eye thing, she actually showed, interestingly, that she can get the cells, the ABCB5 positive cells from the dermis, and then transplant them to the eye. And they undergo this kind of, I don't, I wouldn't call it transdifferentiation, but they give rise to clear cells um, that are equivalent to the, to the lens there. So that was a neat idea that kind of threw me back to the previous talk with a trachea, heterotopic trans and a trachea in the skin, transdifferentiation. So a lot of transdifferentiation, the, the potential of cells, ah, we just have begun, just begun to uh, see. Um, the skin seems like it has a lot of progenitors that can go elsewhere, it seems. Um, and then finally, uh, well, not finally, the last training I'm going to talk about was Tatsuya Osaki from the University of Tokyo. Um, this was, uh, I went to the title because the, the, the talk, because the title had something about cerebral organoids and memory, which, I mean, uh, talk, go back to what I said five okay. minutes ago, Tatsuya, you got to be careful here with the terminology. In fact, he said it right at the beginning. He changed the title of his talk. The memory was gone from the title because <laughs> clearly somebody had a talk with, with him. Um, maybe not. Uh, maybe just thought better. But the idea was it was very cool science, which was that you took these two cerebral organoids, neural organoids, and, and put them opposed from each other. And they grew this axon bundle that was very mm -hmm. robust. Uh, and they showed more complex activities than any organoid alone or even directly opposed. And then the memory idea, which I thought was risky. The idea was that if you, if you entrain them, you do it once, there's a lagging response. And then the next time you do it, they respond quicker. Uh, sensitization maybe would be a better term. We called it memory aggressive. And lastly, Ben Miles from Tel Aviv, really entertaining yeah. talk. He's a great speaker, um, fun to listen to and made some fun little cracks. My kind of guy, uh, my kind of presenter and um, really just went soup to nuts on all these organ chips where they're complexing multiple together. Had a joke in there about how he's applying crystal meth. I mean, <laughs> what yeah ben he's doing it but uh he's doing it well and um i mean really really state of the art uh and and recreating the entire field uh, the entire notion of organ on the chip we're talking about like human on a chip at this point so 
pretty yeah. incredible stuff. And those are the, the concurrence that I was able to catch. And then it was on to the, uh, the penultimate plenary uh, today. Arun, what did you think of that? Yeah, really solid. Just really quickly on Ben Mao's. He's, um, I believe he was in Don Ingber's lab, who is the organ chip guru over at the Wyss Institute in Boston. And uh, I mean, this is something like doing a little bit of organ chip work myself. That is the ultimate goal for this technology is to not just have organ chips, but body chips. So you want to be able to connect multiple organ chips to actually replicate the multiple organs of the body in vitro. Um Easier said than done. There's a lot of microfluidics that has to be involved. And of course, you have to optimize all the different cell types and the iPS-derived cell types to make it happen. But I think he's really kind of spearheading that effort. So we'll see what happens with, with his particular work. But yeah, moving on to the last plenary that we actually attended as part of the show, there is actually a plenary number seven later on today. But this is plenary number six, cell therapy and tissue engineering. I really like this one in part because it had a really strong cardiac element. I am biased, as you know. But starting off with uh, Paul Tassar, who is actually talking about oligodendrocyte regeneration and the mechanisms of oligodendrocyte regeneration. This is, of course, the, the cell type that produces myelin and uh, is misregulated in a lot of diseases. Um, and there's a specific role in SOX6 and actually regulating the, the specific fate of all endocytes. And Shubing Chen from your neck of the woods over there at Wild Cornell, uh, recapping a couple of her major studies in COVID-19 and using iPSC and pluripotent stem cell-derived organoids for studying the infectivity of different cell types um, by SARS-CoV-2. I think the both studies are published. So one was in cell stem cell, I believe it came out at some point during the pandemic last year. And then one more recently in circulation research, I think. Um, the second study I thought was, it, it's really nifty. It was a, a co-culture system of cardiomyocytes and immune cells showing that perhaps the infection of the myocytes is conferring an activation in the immune population um, and maybe approximating what perhaps some of the patients are experiencing in terms of the cardiac manifestations of COVID-19, there's always a disconnect with these COVID-19 in vitro models. And we were actually talking to Dr. Madeline Lancaster about this. You can see the infectivity of a cell type in a dish, but you really got to bring it back to the patient. And if it's not something you see clinically, one fear perhaps is you're unnecessarily raising the worry of, oh man, like this virus is able to infect all the different cell types in my body, even though in reality, the in vivo infectivity of SARS-CoV-2 is much lower and much more selective in terms of the cell types it targets, as opposed to an in vitro system where you don't have any immune system to alleviate some of those viral effects. So I think you, this is a lesson that I learned for sure, because I'm one of the people who actually published on some of this COVID-19 work and using iPS cardiomyocytes to study uh, coronavirus infection of the heart. This is something we all learn. We've got to be really careful about what we say when all eyes are trained on you, both in the scientific audience and in the general public. So, um, so moving on to the next talk from that session, which I thought was really quite phenomenal and quite promising. And I'm a little disappointed that it was actually this late in the ICCR. This is coming from Wolfram Zimmerman, who actually I know pretty well from my time in, in Joe Wu's lab, who's actually a, he's a pretty close collaborator of Joe Wu. Um, 
Wolfram Zimmerman, their their lab has been focusing on these cardiac patches for decades now, basically combining stem cell derived cardiomyocytes and other auxiliary cell types to create these like really nifty cardiac patches that you can use for in vitro modeling of cardiac function. But here they were talking about everything in vivo. So he actually uh, showed a lot of unpublished non-human primate macaque data where they actually took these patches and stuck them on to the, the left ventricle of the heart um, in these macaques who had basically experienced an induced model of heart failure, myocardial infarction. And they're able to show that they're, you know, improving ejection fraction and improving the function of these non-human primate hearts months after getting the, the transplant of these patches. Uh, importantly, it's maybe kind of in contrast to what Chuck Murray was showing, there was pretty limited evidence of arrhythmias with these particular patches. Um, and actually <laughs> the first patient has actually been uh, treated and has received these cardiac patches. Uh, the first patient in Germany, you know, I think received the, the version of this patch in like March of 2021. So I'm really curious to see how that particular individual and how these set of uh, individuals do after receiving these cardiac patches. Um, I was actually talking to, to my, my wife, who's actually a cardiologist, you know, she's a cardiologist in training. And I told her about this, the system, this biological ventricular assist device. And I asked her, is this something, you know, feasible Is this, what do you think about this? And she was saying that the left ventricular assist devices that currently are patients are receiving, they're imperfect, right? They have, they have to have a lot of maintenance. They're large mechanical devices. They're prone to rejection. And, you know, they, they only last, they last for a variable amount of time and they're, uh, they're difficult to maintain. So my thought here is that this is like a, like a biological ventricular assist device. It's kind of like a band-aid that you just stick on the, the ventricle, the heart after the myocardial infarction. I mean, this is, I think I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. This, and Dr. Zimmerman would be the first one to tell me I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, there's a lot more data that has to be generated here to, to before we can show concretely that this is effective and this is working effectively in patients in particular, but I thought it was, you know, one of my favorite talks from the entire ICCR. And then wrapping up that particular plenary was Sonia Schrepfer, who's talking about her work at a, at SANA, um, basically identifying and overcoming the immunological hurdle, hurdles in cell therapy for regenerative medicine. And ideally, you can have these hypoimmune iPSCs and iPSC derivatives that are able to avoid um, immunosuppression that we all need during transplantation. So that's kind of a, a long long-standing goal and, and a long-standing dream of the field is to uh, be able to transplant cells without any sort of immunosuppression. So um, I'm sad that this entire day is at the tail end of the ICCR because this is the, the future looking day, right? A lot of this is the, the clinical translation of all these stem cell derived products and that sort of thing. And it happens to be on the very last day. So even though this is the last plenary that we are attending officially as part of the podcast. There's other talks as well. There's plenary number seven, breakthroughs and therapy development. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the I get it why they put all these things at the end of the, the conference because, you know, it's, 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 it's agreeable in terms of the narrative, right? It's like, oh, there's the beginning and the end and the end leads to the future. 
Um, but yeah, I'm with you. It'd be nice to to have some of these high impact stories come a little early. But they were grouped together, not for no reason. Um, Sonia Shrepp for coming right after uh, Zimmerman there with the hypoimmune. It makes sense, right? Because ultimately, you maybe want to get an off the shelf uh, biological uh, ventricular assist device. But I, I, I mean, we will say that it, it's amazing. I can't wait to see the results. Um, but I will note seven monkeys that were treated and now they've recruited, I think that if I have this right, they've recruited 53 patients. So, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, what more can you do? I get it. You got to move forward at some point, but the amount of resources that get committed to this, um, a tremendous, uh, and I, I just, I guess it's, it'll be some time before the, the, the therapy becomes practical in terms of the economy of it. Uh, efficacy notwithstanding, but I, I have to say, like you, I was very impressed with these results showing that, in fact, it does work um, and it works consistently uh, and and is very, you know, impressive. I'll mm -hmm. say that. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it was a great final day. There's still more to come. Uh, we have all the rest of this road to the clinic meetings and then the final plenary, and you guys should definitely tune in for that. But, you know, that's it. That's our final video episode. We hope you guys have enjoyed it. We still have the interview with Nicola coming right up. But before we get to that, I have a brief message from Stem Cell Tech. ISSCR is a great opportunity to hear about Stem Cell Technologies' upcoming products like Cloner 2, a supplement designed to improve the cloning efficiency of gene-edited pluripotent stem cells. Sign up to be the first to know about Cloner 2 and other products at www.stemcell.com upcoming products. And now I'm really excited for this chat because, you know, right from the beginning of this conference, when we aired our first show, I was thinking about Dr. Rerun and his seminal work. And I think everyone else listening to these talks throughout the conference has been thinking about his work too and where it's going to go. So let's chat with him and see. All right, everybody. This episode, we have with us a special guest, I think, really ties into the major themes of this year's meeting, uh, which is, you know, stem cell based models of embryo development. Uh, we have on the show today, Nicola Rivron, who is group leader at the Institute of Molecular Biotechnology in Vienna. The Rivron Lab created the blastoid, the first stem cell based model of the blastocyst which comprised the three founding cell types of the conceptus and implanted in utero. That was a nature story three years ago about. Uh, his group gathers embryologists, stem cell biologists, genetic engineers, and computational biologists to investigate the principles underlying early mammalian development. Nicola, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a great, great pleasure. Quickly, what are you thinking of the uh, meeting so far? Any uh, highlights, your favorite talks or anything? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's the, it's the grand reunion, so it's, it's always difficult to, uh, to like, pinpoint at somebody specific. But uh, I was very, I was my, um, uh, somebody who blew my, blew my mind was uh, the talk of uh, Sarah Bisotto. Um, she's uh, in the, the lab of uh, Christopher Walsh and I think the work that they are doing on uh, the role of somatic mutations in order to lineage trace and uh, 
look at the clonality of organisms, actually humans, is extremely interesting. Just uh, uh, so this, this is still a bigger highlight for me. Uh, more related to my work, uh, I think Ivan uh, Bezov did a very nice job also from the Max Planck uh, at showing like how we can recapitulate aspects of implantation uh, using a mouse blastocyst. Mm -hmm. Those are the two of, two of my favorites until now. Yeah, I remember going to that one. Uh, that particular session was really strong. Um, I guess before we dive into the nitty gritty of your science, uh, we wanted to get your opinion on some of the new ISSCR guidelines that have come out recently and really a focus on how they've been reworked around a lot of these new embryo models, like the ones that your lab is you know, pioneering. So in particular, the, the softening, I guess, of the 14-day rule and so on. And I just want to get your, your opinion on how these things have, have turned out. Yeah, so there, there are multiple reasons why I think this rule has been changed including uh, the fact that uh, countries with different cultures have uh, different views on the embryo. People in France, China, or US, due to their own history and culture of their society, have different views on the type of protection, ethical protection, that should be given to a human embryo. And the first point is that the ISSCR as an international society must embrace all those views as long as they comply to uh, scientists' basic ethical principles. And um, yeah, so those those ethical uh, those ethical principles are the ones of uh, proportionality. You must balance the benefit and harms, uh, subsidiarity, pursuing goals with uh, the more uh, morally least uh, problematic means. Um, so these are like the two main main principles. You know, and, uh, however, there's uh, there is a slight uh, moral uh, asymmetry between harms and benefits, um, in the sense that harms to uh, morally uh, morally relevant subjects should be avoided and reduced, uh, even if those harms produce significant significant benefits to others. And we should always try to reduce harm even if there are benefits. A uh, classical example uh, from the, the last year is, is, the, is the COVID. You know, like, uh, it was, there were political decisions uh, in order to understand what's the balance between uh, you know, maintaining the economy and uh, saving human lives. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, most of the countries, of course, uh, consider that you know, humans' lives are more important than the economy. And in that sense, you, know, like you have to like, uh, lockdown, you know, and the, 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 the same is the same happens with clinical trials. You know, like uh, uh, you are allowed to uh, perform uh, clinical trials on humans, but not at every cost. You know. So, um, yeah, in order to understand uh, early development, uh, which is extremely important for uh, society and medical progress, uh, the choice is quite binary at the moment. Uh, one can use animals. Uh, the closest uh, to us being non-human primates, or one can culture a uh, surplus uh, IVF blastocyst in a dish. And I think that culturing IVF blastocyst in a dish creates far less harm than experimenting with apes. So um, it makes a lot of sense for me to actually like uh, make sure that uh, we uh, lift up uh, this type of rule or that we ease on it. It doesn't mean that 
Um, everyone will culture uh, blastocyst. So the next question is, you know, how often should we do it? And when do we stop the experiment? And um, how often do we do it? You know, like there are still like very strong uh, ethical rules in order to like do this type of experiments. And uh, one should not do it uh, more than necessary. Uh, and when do we when do we do the experiment? And and you know the, when do we, do we stop the experiment is uh, also questionable. Uh, it and, and every um, jurisdictions will have to uh, you know have a debate and think about it. But clearly, this is not going to go very far. You know, uh, we are technically we have still difficulties to culture those embryos. So, um, but it's extremely important to create like good reference data sets. And uh, with single cell sequencing, now we have the chance of creating very good reference data sets with very few embryos. So I think this is, this is definitely worth it. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned it, it's, it depends where you are, right? Cultural differences oftentimes will dictate wh what you know, people are, are comfortable with. And I think that it was great well, it's important um, that the ISSCR guidelines were, were uh, deferential to that fact. Um, but I mean, moving aside from the ethics of it, I mean, I'm sure you get these questions all the time. And uh, if it were me, I'd be annoyed, frankly, because it's I'm not trying to make, if it were me, I'd say, I'm not trying to make babies here. Uh, everyone's focused on the reproductive potential or even you know the idea that you can um, use uh, these cells to make better, uh, you know, totipotent cells or something, and all that is is fundamentally important. But you know, I think there's there's a lot more. You, you talked about it in your in your presentation that what you're going after are fundamental cellular mechanisms, like you know, the polarization of the blastocyst. How you go from a, a one cell type to multiple cell types. How complexity emerges um, pretty much in space. And I think what people are missing there maybe is that this maybe has more application fundamentally to ESL differentiation and organoid differentiation. And you might argue that a pre-implantation embryo is more like the organoids that we're making with our stem cells than the actual, you know, de novo tissues in, you know, physiological origins of these tissues in embryogenesis. Why? Because we're making them kind of in a vacuum and cells in a dish versus in the, divorced from their tissue architecture. So right. like how, how are some of these um, fundamental principles that you're, you're trying to get at? And I know this must be on your menu here, but maybe people don't appreciate it. Are, are you're trying to maybe overlay and apply those principles that you glean from pre-implantation embryos. Can they be then applied to just general um, yeah. tissue differentiation to more optimally or efficiently uh, make all kinds of tissues from all different organs. Yeah, yeah so my, my opinion is that uh, the, the embryos are the great masters, you know, and that you, you, just, you just learn from them. And they have over time, over millions of years of evolution, developed those very complex ways that we barely understand. And it's extremely surprising to me how the more we dig, the more we realize that we very poorly understand this. Yeah. And there's an enormous room for understanding basic uh, principles and doing basic science. 
And this basic science is going to very rapidly feed into uh, societal benefits because by understanding those basic uh, principles, we are going to be able to understand diseases. We are going to be able to understand if we can unleash in some ways the potential for humans to regenerate. And, but this all starts with like very deep understanding. And in that sense, the blastocyst is, is very good because um, it is extremely simple. Uh, it has three cell types, 100 cells. And still, in those <laughs> three cell types and 100 cells, it's pretty much everything. You know? So like, uh, you've got like, you know, an epithelium, a mesenchyme, uh, crosstalks, very complex uh, special pattern of patterning. Uh, so yeah, just, I think you can just spend your whole life <laughs> looking at this. So, so um, yeah. Yeah, and now you have a, a great model system to kind of take a deeper dive into some of these fundamental basic mechanisms of early human development and early mammalian development. I think, you know, I think that's really the emphasis here is the the basic science studies, right? It's such an incredible model system. And the other thing that you actually showed during your talk, which I thought was aesthetically very beautiful, by the way, I want to aspire to have a PowerPoint presentation that looks as good as yours, I, I got to say. One other thing you actually showed during your talk was the the throughput of this technology and the fact that you can scale up these blastoids very quickly, very easily, and it really enables um, high throughput screening, you know, mass interrogation of different uh, perhaps compounds that may be able to alter the function and development of these things. So it's, um, I think, a very powerful system in the scalability as well. One thing I did want to talk about, though, since this is you talked about it at the tail end of your talk was actually using these blastoids in combination with endometrial organoids to actually study mechanisms of early implantation. I thought that was really mind-blowing work. So if you want to elaborate on that a little bit more. Yeah, so of course, uh, it's ethically absolutely unacceptable to transfer such uh, blastoids inside any uterus. I'm talking about human blastoids. Um, so, but we have to understand uh, the process of implantation, because this is absolutely crucial for many things, including uh, contraception, fertility, uh, early pregnancy loss. It is, it is basically to empower women to actually uh, better control uh, their fertility and have children uh, if and when they want. Uh, and uh, we can only do this uh, if we develop like such in vitro systems, I believe. Um, and so we started to like combine those human blastoids with uh, the first lining of the uterus, which is the endometrium. And very uh, luckily, there's, uh, there's uh, people that has been establishing endometrium uh, organoids. So those endometrium organoids allow for the expansion of those uh, initial biopsies and you can create like virtually an infinite number of, of those endometrial cells. This is the work from Hugo von Kelkom uh, in, uh, in Belgium and also uh, Turco in, uh, in, in UK. So uh, what we did is actually to like expand those biopsies and then play them in 2D to facilitate the 2D uh, deposition of the blastoids. And uh, then uh, we, uh, we are using uh, stimulations using hormones in order to uh, switch those uh, endometrial layers to a state of receptivity. And what was absolutely, uh, yeah, it was, it was a very special moment when 
in the lab is that uh, we actually figured out very quickly that those blastoids, they can uh, literally sit on top of endometrial layers for days if you don't stimulate them with hormones. They just don't do anything. However, if you have stimulated them prior to the position of the blastoids, then the blastoids, they, they, they attach and they, they crawl into, into the layer like very efficiently. And they not only do this, but they also like roll around and position themselves so that uh, they actually like attach to the endometrial layer via the, the right region, which is the polar region of the, uh, the, blasto the blastoid. So there's like, we actually recapitulating the level of complexity that I, I kind of, I, I, I didn't think we, we, we would be able to, like, to, to do it. it. It just means that the, yeah, the, 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 those things can, can be very well studied in a dish now. So it's, it's, it's quite exciting, yeah. Yeah, just a point on that. I, I, I thought it was also in terms of just, re, I know there's all these things that you didn't think you hoped, but didn't think you'd be able to recapitulate. But there was also, I think, the uh, interesting finding that you had that there was like a window. There's a, there's a window of uh, implantation. It's been known uh, that the yeah. uterus, there's like a window of receptivity. Yeah. But I think what has been less appreciated, there's also a window for the embryo itself. And my yeah. chief you know, I work in an IVF clinic, uh, yeah. one of the biggest in, in New York, and a lot of volume for 40 years they've been doing. He's been saying that, you know, there's not much evidence because the uterus is a black box, but he's been saying for years uh, that there is a window for the embryo. Just, you know, empirically what he's found from his long experience, four decades, and there's never been a way to prove it. So it was really gratifying for me to see that these stem cell-based models are actually, you know, get, getting down to it and uh, gleaning some insights from that black box. But, you know, we can't ignore the obvious question a lot of people are going to put out there about, you know, can you use these embryos for reproduction, right? And you talk about fertility. Um, I think, and you said it, you were very careful to emphasize early in your presentation that no one's been able to make a mouse from these blastoids. Um, but I think a lot of people would consider it a, a possibility, right, at least. Uh, and I know like Su Susana Shuva de Souza Lopez has talked about making germ cells from ES cells and, yeah. and projected that it's, I wouldn't say inevitable, but she said it's possible um, and that it may come about. Um, but, you know, then there's the guidelines with CRISPR uh, way back when we had Jean K. Hay in the whole notion there of when it's appropriate to use CRISPR in the context of, you know, in this case, um, pre-implantation embryos altering uh, the twins there. And I think the consensus there was you really only want to use CRISPR if there's no other choice and you have an existing condition that, you know, it's already in play. It's not something you're making an embryo to fix it, so to speak. So mm -hmm. I wonder with the unknown unknowns of having an any cell that's in culture, and having that cell then become an embryo where any changes are then you know, committed to the germline in perpetuity. Uh, I just have to ask, do you think that it's ever under any conditions gonna be feasible to use blastoids, ES-derived germ cells for reproduction? Well, you know, like we have to take things at the pace that we think things are going to happen you now. Like, so I think it's just important to focus on you know, like the next 
important things. Um, it's very clear at the moment that those structures that we are uh, creating in the lab are very rudimentary and very far from an embryo. Uh, they, are, they are models uh, and uh, are probably going to remain, uh, they, are, they are going to, to remain extremely rudimentary for quite a long time, you know, like decades. And, uh, so what can we do during those decades? You know, we can try to improve them and uh, we can try to answer questions. Uh, scientific questions and also uh, medical medical questions and um, uh, those I think those scientific and medical questions are quite well uh, circled now uh, we can answer like questions about uh, you know how to better manage uh, manage early pregnancy contraception uh, IVF uh, early pregnancy loss so these are these are all extremely important things that we can do now and you know, we should. I think we should focus on. We should focus on this. Um, science is moving fast, also, and you know, like we don't know what will happen, and we have to like keep on thinking about what are the possibilities. Um, however, at, at the moment, you know, like we are very far from having like something that is an embryo. Those are not, uh, these are just embryo models, these are not embryos. So, uh, you know, one, one step at a time, I would say. Fair, fair. And I, I will note that you didn't say never, you didn't say never. So uh, I, I respect that. And I also respect um, the care you've taken in uh, communicating the science and practicing the science, because yes, but, as you said, yeah, we're sorry, very far away. Actually, there's, there's one point here, like, so, you know, like, you know, we are, we are trying to solve societal or medical problems, you know, and as long as you don't have like a societal of medical problems to solve, <laughs> uh, for that, that would be solved by using uh, blastoids for reproduction, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't think there's, there's, a, there's a case here, you know, you see what I mean, you know, like, uh, you know, like, you know, we don't do this for like the sake of doing it, we do this for like the benefit of society, so um, if there is no problem to solve, you know, <laughs> there's no reason to do it. You know. uh, yes, I get it. I mean, I just, the only reason I mention is because, you know, it's funny, reproduction and infertility, I would say, of all the maladies, so to speak, are, are, are less appreciated um, because it's not life or death, you know. But I like to say, uh -huh. and I'm not the first one to say it, infertility is a case of life or no life. Um, and the patients who are affected by infertility are, are just as desperate for a solution. So sometimes they reach for these solutions that I think may seem feasible and practical, but aren't necessarily, I think, uh, so practical, safe, feasible. Um, and I, I, I get, this is the question. Does it meet the threshold of uh, a malady that needs intervention yeah, and other alternative methods? And for some patients, rare patients, there really are no eggs. Or yeah. there are no sperm so yeah. for them maybe this represents a possibility but i think you really made it made a fine point there that that the science moves slow and there may be alternative methods to address it and uh, you know if it's not a problem right there and a, and a critical problem a dire problem for society then we're not just going to be you know implanting eye blastoids to see if we can so mm -hmm. i think that this is a, a comfort i think to anyone out there who, who's worried about it and also leaves open the possibility and, and, and uh, allows for hope for patients who maybe see this as their only 
uh, potential course. But as you said, we're far away um, and we've got a long way to go, but uh, thanks to you and, and your peers, I think we're making a lot of progress. Uh, and it's a great way to finish our video series here, I think, because we touched on a lot of the themes that I think have emerged in this year's meeting. Um, so thanks so much for joining us. Uh, that brings us to the finale of our ISSCR 2021 video episodes. To all the watchers, listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. We'll see you back with our regular programming. Thank you so much, Nicola, for anchoring our video series. Again, this has been a really fun chat. Thank you.